Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Jenna, tell them a little bit. Can you explain to them what you're doing? Okay. So um, I graduated from med school a couple of months ago. I did it in the country of uh, Georgia in the Eastern Europe. I have to do an examination in order to be able to practice in India. So I'm currently pursuing that. Also, uh, I was asked to help start an English service in a, in a city in uh, a city of uh, Bangalore in India. I just moved to the city a couple of months ago and uh, we started a, a little church, an English service. Matt, exp- explain uh, to Jenna what you do. Hi, Gino. This is this is Matt. So I was uh, I was a student of Paul's, and uh, we became fast friends. And uh, his his courses literally just changed my my life. I was very much into theology, some philosophy, and Paul really helped me to. Um, you know, I was just more of like a, you know, I was just sort of doing some reading and some thinking, but I wasn't living as a Christian. Um, mm-hmm. I was just sort of dabbling you know in theology and philosophy and even dabbling in christianity which i now realize is an you know truly like an impossibility you you can't really dabble in christianity it's like it's like dabbling in witchcraft it's like well you can't really dabble in witchcraft it's like you're either in or you're out but but paul helped me to put some some really tough things together uh the first thing would be you know the whole issue on violence and peace and things like that, which I'm sure we'll talk about in due course. But but yeah, just our friendship has 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 kind of blossomed over the years. I really just thank God for for Paul and for Jason and and uh, for Jonathan and for what God has been able to do through this through the situation we were all able to meet. So now I kind of I graduated from that from that Bible college. Mm-hmm. I don't like to use use the name, but uh, and then went on to to get a, a master's degree at Lincoln Christian University, and I truly can credit Paul's direction. Uh, you know what I mean through through my early sort of exposure to Christianity. I don't think that I would be doing the works that I'm doing today if it weren't for an understanding of sort of a holistic vision of what it means to follow Jesus uh, must look like. I'm a nerd. I'm a theology nerd. I I love this stuff and. You know, I, I think that every other conversation is, is boring compared to, well, there really is no other conversation, right? That's, that was mm-hmm. Paul's blog. Is, there really is no other conversation. Uh, every conversation is potentially theological, right? Mm-hmm. It's like I, I love sports mm-hmm. and stuff, but you can only talk about that stuff for so long before it's like, well, this, this stuff doesn't really matter, you know. <laughs> Let's talk about the yeah. good stuff, you know. You can't see Matt because Matt has just, Matt is all the way in Indiana, and so he's not able to use internet. Now, Jeno is in India. Where <laughs> I can try. I can try here. Hold on. No, it's okay. <laughs> uh, well, I'm in, uh, in the country of Mexico. I uh, had to specify because a lot of people think Mexico, Missouri. But <laughs> I'm a missionary here in, uh, in the state of Colima. Uh, my wife and I were working on, uh, on starting several... Bible studies, so we can uh, hopefully at some point uh, start different churches in the area. I am doing a master's degree in theology, so I'm sitting in because Matt invited me. <laughs> we were talking about David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament on uh, Facebook. So 
John was my uh, my T. He's been my TA, yeah. and he's helped. I don't know if you've noticed, he's helped a lot with the plowshares uh, stuff. We do. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of podcasts with uh, with John. I'm Jason, and um, I've been working with Paul in in forging plowshares. Well, uh, we've been kind of together, I think, since the inception. But um, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. Not the same as the country of Georgia, but apparently in Georgia, our internet is better than in Indiana. So, uh, um, I was uh, sort of wondering, the organization that I work for follows uh, Jack Cottrell's systemat systematic theology. Me following um, a McClendon's doctrine will definitely, it definitely is very different from, from that systematic mm -hmm. theology. I mean, they would view it as a postmodernistic theology. Is that right? I'm always hesitant to use the word postmodern okay. because I think sometimes that for some people you say that and it's not clear mm -hmm. what you're communicating. And so what I would say about McClendon is that the approach that he's taking uh, fits mm -hmm. in with people like uh, Stanley Hauerwas and maybe the mm -hmm. post-liberals out of Yale that mm -hmm. it is a narrative approach to theology. The word, the term postmodern, and that, you know, mm -hmm. he brings that up in this first chapter. He's, he's describing it, and I think in the way that I like, and that is what mm -hmm. he's describing is postmodernism is sort of an opportunity in that mm -hmm. modernity is failing, not just mm -hmm. theologically, but culturally and in many ways there are a variety of alternative understandings, radical orthodoxy in England, uh, going back to Bartianism. So there would be several things. I, I'm almost afraid to use the term postmodern. There are some people using that terminology, especially in mm -hmm. the what is the emerging church, and I don't mean what they mean when they use the term. Mm -hmm. and, and all that I'm saying with any of this terminology, I think there is a return then to a pure biblical understanding. In other words, I'm not relinquishing orthodoxy in any way. I think that mm -hmm. modernity, you get this, you know, Jack Cottrell, by the way, was my professor and, in seminary, so okay. I'm very well familiar. Uh, acquainted with what he's doing. And his is then, I think, a typical modern theology. You know, if you take mm -hmm. the first chapter of his book, mm -hmm. you know, he's written a trilogy himself or the little book, Faith Once for All. Uh, mm -hmm. He begins then with the traditional arguments for God. And mm -hmm. the, the thing that he's doing is what is always happening. And it's not even really fair to Thomas Aquinas because it is a kind of foundationalism. It's resting upon a kind of human rationalism. And then mm -hmm. after he finishes arguing for the existence of God, then we begin chapter two. He says, now let's open the Bible. Well, the problem is we've already got a, our uh, system up and running rather than mm -hmm. deriving it from a biblical understanding. And I think that's what uh, is happening, you know, McClendon, actually, we're starting with book two. His first book in the trilogy is Ethics, and in Ethics, mm -hmm. he demonstrates a narrative theology, and part of that is he's just, you know, mm -hmm. that we locate theology uh, in mm -hmm. the, the story of the Bible 
in the, the narrative of, you know, who is God? Well, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, rather than to say that he's the God of the philosophers or of these arguments. And I, so I think that's the, there'll be many differences with somebody like Jack Cottrell. That would be the key one, that he's, Jack is working from a typical, and, 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 you know, if you said this to these guys directly, I don't know if they would embrace the idea mm -hmm. of being modernists or, or not, but Cottrell received his education at a Calvinist institution, and this would be the mm -hmm. other thing that I think is reflected in his theology. In spite mm -hmm. of his saying that he's very anti-Calvinist, his own mm -hmm. theological orientation when it comes to atonement, the, uh, you know, he's advocating Calvin's doctrine of penal substitution. Yes. Yes. So those would be um, just, uh, anybody else want to jump in there with some differences? I'm actually was just literally going to repeat uh, McClendon on page 25. I thought, I thought of Cottrell actually, when he says on page 25, he's got like the smaller font, you know, thing that he does. He says, uh, he's commenting on the, the phrase that's a very uh, restoration movement phrase or like a jack, mm -hmm. you know, something that would be right there in, in Cottrell's book that the Bible, the whole Bible and nothing but the Bible. McClendon comments on this. He says, however, this turns out not to work very well. Since yeah. one, this primary affirmation about the role of scripture is not itself part of scripture, mm -hmm. but can only be another doctrine added to it. Or two, mm. nor does Scripture provide the canon of Scripture, which only appeared later, right? And in fact, mm -hmm. three, historic fundamentalism with its five points, or the like, is no more willing than Catholicism's uh, teaching to let the Bible and let the Bible only speak, right? So mm -hmm. I just I, I, I thought of, because the way that Paul actually taught this class was, and I hope that this is okay to share, but the, the, we actually use the faith once for all text, but... Mm -hmm. Basically, the way that Paul, you know, went about it was to say, well, do the reading on Cottrell, and then we're going to talk about why he's got it totally wrong. <laughs> is, that a, is that unfair, Paul? Is that, yeah, and, and, I mean, uh, and I in no way... Totally wrong might be strong. Yeah. I, I in me, no way mean disrespect, you know, to him. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, mm -hmm. he was a very effective classroom teacher. He's highly organized. He's written... Uh, probably more in our movement than anybody else, but mm -hmm. I think his he's characteristic of the problem of a kind of modern understanding. And what what mm -hmm. I would say that the difference mm -hmm. is with McClendon and what the approach we're taking in the class. Uh, I I want to take the Bible even more seriously than he's taking mm -hmm. it. What you're mm -hmm. getting in a classical modernist formula is to mm -hmm. say, well, let's formulate our understanding of truth outside of Scripture and then apply that to Scripture. I think that actually mm -hmm. our very understanding of truth is to attach it to the person and work of Christ so that we, mm -hmm. we can't have an, uh, some sort of uh, definition that we're going mm -hmm. to apply to Scripture. No, Scripture is, Christ is the truth, and we're going to apprehend mm -hmm. even our understanding of that truth, not from mm -hmm. outside, but inside uh, Christianity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, another way of looking at the difference between somebody like McClendon as a post-secular or post-liberal theology, rather than using the terminology of postmodernism, is that mm -hmm. McClendon is 
taking a very historical approach to theology. So that when he's talking about doctrines, he's grounding them both in the history of the church and specifically how he goes through this book is by grounding doctrines within the history of the three major streams of the church. So you have Catholicism, uh, you have you know, Protestantism, and then he's always giving mm-hmm. this Baptist vision. Um, what you gain there over the way a modernistic systematic theology would be is that in modernity, theology in most things were done ahistorically. So it's all about what can we know via reason apart from history or apart from being people grounded in a place and time. And so McClendon's trying to take more seriously the fact that as Christians, we're already living in time and space and in particular communities. And so what does it mean to be Christians in that context rather than what might it mean to believe in God detached from the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent, excellent point. What has happened in modernity is the notion you know, of a, a historical notion of truth itself. And then that gets mm-hmm. attached to Scripture. Oh, well, Christ is in some way these ahistorical propositions that we can mm-hmm. extract. But what we really do is we, we understand who Christ is in and through a historical uh, context. And so, yeah, a historical theology is what's left out of much of Protestantism, but maybe most especially, well, I don't know if the Restoration Movement is unique in that. I think it's just sort of the Protestant uh, there in much Protestantism. It, one of the things I try to tackle when I've taught biblical interpretation, that we all bring a set of assumptions uh, whenever we come to the text. And, you know, there just isn't really any way to avoid that. The fact that you understand what words mean and that you have definitions of words means that you're coming to the text with a worldview. In my opinion, one of the issues that the Jack Cottrell's, uh, the, the, when I say that, I mean sort of the typical fundamentalist uh, perspective. There's a sense where we don't really realize we're bringing our own perspective into and coloring our understanding of the text with that pre-perspective. The fact that you start with the, the cosmological argument in a biblical, a biblical theology is a, a prime example of not really realizing that your own assumptions are already coloring what you think the text means when you come to it. I would try to get to some light here. That it's, it's growing dark here quickly. <laughs> looks like you're doing the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Have we lost Jano? Yeah, the video is out uh, because of uh, terrible internet. It's nearly as bad in India as Indiana. It's not that bad, but I want to watch it. So not okay. that bad. <laughs> it's not that bad. The problem is that I uh, is that uh, as I learn, I constantly will have to. Uh, keep on referring to to Cottrell's understanding and keep on uh, uh, just making sure that I've uh, got a, a proper stand to explain myself, uh, you know, to the authorities higher above. The beginning of the class is a good place to begin to make these distinctions. But as we get into mm-hmm. it and you compare like what Cottrell says about the love of God and God's mm-hmm. anger, he pictures mm-hmm. those two things as if they are pitted against one another as if he cannot yes. reconcile, as if there is some schizophrenic problem in the mind of God that is solved mm-hmm. with, with Christ. 
I, I mm-hmm. think that there is an understanding of God in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, it's not Christian, uh, if I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pictures, the death of Christ, as if it's mm-hmm. addressing a problem in the mind of God. Mm-hmm. No, I think the, the death of Christ is pictured, it, it, it is the resolution to the problem of sin and death. And so one of the things that I, as we go through the class, that we'll talk about understandings of atonement, as we've reduced Christianity down to a kind of modernist explanation, we've also reduced the atonement. In the beginning of the class here, the theological project, you know, what is this? In in a sense, there, there may be an impossibility of apprehending in its fullness and completeness the truth of Christ. This is a truth that we live and move and have our being in. The temptation in modernity was to, in some way, encapsulate own, you know, this truth is like a mathematical truth, like a scientific truth. But the truth of Christ is, is the world that is constituted for us as an alternative, I think, to the, the world of sin and darkness. You know, this is the Johannine picture. In other words, I'm saying there's a, there's a kind of inarticulateness in the understanding that I'm okay with. There's going to be some points where we have to say, I can't completely apprehend the truth. And so when we talk about the truth of Christ— the way that Kevin Van Hooser will talk about it, that this is a mission that we're on, and as we go on this mission, you know, this is the interesting thing. We've got Mexico, India. You guys are going to come at this with a very different perspective, and in some way the the gospel fits in. It speaks to people in each of these cultures in a in a culturally specific way. And this is, you know, this is part of my what happened with me in Japan, I just understood that, you know, the way that I learned Christianity, it was almost like I had to explain to people their problem, you know, oh, well, you know, you've got this sin problem, and you're going to go to hell, and I need to Mm -hmm. convince you. Well, that's not really the way the truths of Christ, I think, should fit into. You know, I, I don't know India, I don't know Mexico, but I have this inherent faith, I, I'm pretty familiar with Japan, that it directly addresses the Japanese predicament uh, if we understand then, first of all, what the height, breadth, and depth of the gospel, and then it gives us a lens to apprehend and see where people are at. You know, um, Paul, one of the things that, that comes out, I think, when you're dealing with Jack Cottrell's sort of inherent Calvinism, one of the things that I, I feel like is is sort of uh, underneath what you're saying is that Calvinism itself really seems to have very clean answers to all the questions, right? To be able to say with with clarity exactly what the problem is and exactly what the solution is and exactly how this works and exactly how that works. When the gospel itself, you know, when you read when you read about the experiences of Jesus with the apostles, and then when you read about the book of Acts, and you read about you read the epistles, um, it's a much messier faith, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of unknowns, and there's a lot of figuring outs. I feel like the, the answers are never quite as clean as I always 
sort of imagined that they were when I was reading things like Jack Cottrell. Jesus never really stood in the Gospels and said, you know, the real problem here, folks, look, everybody just listen. The real problem is that y'all sinned, and God's really mad about it. And somebody's got to die. And uh, and so I'm going to kill somebody, and then I'll feel better, and everything will be better. It's not that simple. It's actually a much more complex set of problems that Jesus comes to resolve. It's a far more robust faith. It really speaks to a lot more of our life than just where we're going to go Um, You mentioned Van Hooser earlier, and uh, the thing that I thought of when you said that was that I think that it's in the same book, but Van Hooser says that humility is the entry point into theology. And I I never forgot that, and I think that that's something that modernity lacks, is a certain humility, right, to to sort of an entry point into the conversation that almost like ironically so – because of the charges, you know, of, of sort of moderns against postmodernity, that they're saying, oh, well, you guys are saying that there's no truth, that there's no, you know, that you can't know any, that's all relative, you can't really know anything. And it's like, well, I think that one favor that postmodernity is certainly doing for us is, is, is understanding, like, the limitations of human knowledge because of our sort of situatedness in culture and history and language, that modern thinkers, I just feel like, don't almost have like the resources to, to see like in their own epistemology. Right. And, and I do think mm-hmm. that it's almost a lack of humility, humility on the order of what Jason was describing. It's like, I think that, that I'm, I'm becoming more and more comfortable. The, the longer I study theology, the more I think about these things, the more comfortable I'm saying, I, I, I'm getting with saying something like, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure. Now that doesn't make me wishy-washy. I don't think that we have to be, you know, that I, I, actually I'm pretty vocal about a lot of things. And I think that, we need to be as Christians, but on a lot of these different things, I guess that part of the biggest favor that post-modernity has done for me personally is to say, you know what, like there, there's limitations to human knowledge and you actually need revelation. You actually need the, the gospel, the narrative of the scriptures and, and chiefly in the life and death and resurrection of Christ to tell you something about the world and about yourself that you wouldn't otherwise know. And I think that there's a, there's a humility that, that a, a modern form system of thinking would have would say, no, actually, we can just use reason to figure all this stuff out. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, actually, you can't. Your, your reason is fallen. Your reason now, is reason a gift from God? Of course. Is, the reason, is reason good? Yes. In as, much as it's, in as much as it's reasonable, right, as Thomas Aquinas said. But that's all I, that's all I had to say. But the, the humility is the entry point into the theological discourse. Matt, you made me think of a lot of things, actually. I've been reading The Theologic, which is the last bit of Balthazar's major work. And he's, I mean, he's kind of interacting with Hegel and, Bal- uh, and Heidegger. But the idea in the New Testament, you, what you get in the New Testament, John's prologue primarily, well, you have Jesus as the truth in John as well, but in the prologue you have Jesus as exegeting, revealing, communicating the Father. But the idea is, as Jesus, as that revelation, is unveiling or unhiding something. You know, Heidegger tries mm-hmm. to do that without ever referring to Christianity and sort of ripping off the New Testament. But then you have, <laughs> on the flip side of that, so you have truth as unveiledness. On the flip side of that, uh, Balthazar <laughs> will talk about truth as something that you can depend on, something that, uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, he's talking about in the sense that when you enter into truth, you're seeing things rightly. 
So it's not just a constant unveiling, but it's something that we're able to live in or grow in as well. And the way he talks about the way he brings that philosophically together in the way that we've already been talking is that when we're doing epistemology, how can we be sure what we know is what we know? We really also need to be concerned with ontology because when we are knowing, when we are entering into the truth, if we truly believe that God has ordered things to where we, everything, creation included, but ourselves are becoming more and more like him, we're going somewhere, we're going towards the consummation of all things, then what we know is affecting who we are or our being. And I, this is Paul's book uh, as well. Mm -hmm. What's happening in that shift between Romans 7 and 8? Well, in one sense, there's a difference in the way that we know. But in an even greater sense, there's a difference in who we are ontologically, that we're going from being a subject constituted in and through a lie, which has to do with knowing, but also has to do with a false reality that we take as existence or being. And you're exchanging that for a reality constituted by the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's changing who we are. And Balthazar will stretch the analogy even further in the sense that when we're talking about being in the sense, that being is participating in who God is now. So that I mean, McClendon will talk about being the community of the now and not yet. And I think that's, mm -hmm. so I just brought Balthazar back to McClendon. I think that's what's going on here in this first chapter in McClendon and the major difference between these two ways of thinking that we've been talking about is what you know uh, such that you can enter into it, that you're growing and changing and becoming more and more like God? Or is it just head knowledge that you can sort of wrap your head around? It's logical, it makes sense, and you go about on about your day. Mm -hmm. That's good. I just want to say real quick before I forget that I think that, you know, McCutton touches on this a little bit with fundamentalism. And, and one of the problems that I found, and, and I and the, I'm not saying that we're, you know, when you say cultural, you've already said fundamentalism, but I kind of am saying that. There's no room really for questions. Like, I'm just purely in a practical sense, like an existential lived sense. It's like whenever I found myself in those fundamentalist contexts, there's really not even any room for questions where, you know, it's like you're immediately cast as being as suspicious or whatever else. And I think it's because there's a presumption there that, that, that they already own the truth, that they already, that it doesn't have to be revealed in the way that Jonathan was just describing, you know? And so that there's almost like a hubris there where it's like, well, once you start asking questions that don't make sense with the answers that we already have up and running, like there's already, there's already a problem, right? And so Paul was starting out his classes saying that perhaps, you know, Dr. Cottrell is starting with the wrong answers. He's, I don't even think that he starts with a faith once for all with question. If, I might be wrong about that, but I don't know that he starts out his book with, with sort of a, you know, the attempt to answer a question. But he just presumes, I think, doesn't he, Paul, to kind of lay out the arguments? Is that mm -hmm. where he starts with the? It is. Mm -hmm. uh, it is the idea that you get in a, a modern apologetic. You know, what is the most important a person can ask? Does God exist? Well, actually, that's a very modernist question. I would guess that in both Mexico and India, belief in God or belief in the gods uh, are probably, that's not uppermost in people's mind. I think that the, the question and answer that is given to us in Scripture actually doesn't deal with, you know, it begins, in the beginning was God and 
And so the presumption is the existence of God. The existence is not a problem. And so I, I think that that is characteristic then of a, you know, well then in a modernist understanding, the main uh, energy is spent in proving God, proving Christ, as if that's where our, our main problem is and a kind of intellectual problem. Now, I'm not saying there may not be cultures and times and places where that, you know, the, but I think for most people, and especially in traditional cultures like Japan, and I'm guessing similar uh, in, in Mexico and India, the, that's really the, the world of uh, a kind of modernist apologetics doesn't really address the problem. The, the pro- First of all, it, it, it's leaving out that I think what Scripture is saying, we have a moral predicament. Our problem, this is Kierkegaard, is not that of, of you know, a lack of knowledge. Our problem is we're rebellious. And, and so the way you answer rebellion is not through some sort of academic or head knowledge, but it's through repentance. I, I think that part of the, the problem that I, at least I've noticed the most, it was when I was in college, is that the way the Bible is being handled now is, is, is a textbook. It's not something you, you live, it's something you have to learn. And so uh, you go into reading the Bible with uh, in the idea of how much information can I absorb? And then it becomes this, this attitude of how much I can show off you know, to others that I know instead of what I'm actually living. And Matt was saying, you know, we have to come to uh, reading the Bible with humility. Uh, and usually we don't. We just come to the Bible with, with this ego of how much can I know? How much can I take out of it uh, without really uh, putting it in, into practice? And so in the Bible, we start with, you know, with our creation and explaining how God breathed life into us. The whole thing, the whole Bible was breathed out by God, which is the same breath that he used to create uh, life, life in us. And so the Bible is something you have to live. It's not something you just have to read and, and memorize. What I'm trying to say uh, is that in the culture that we live in, uh, you know, I don't know how things are in, uh, in, in India. I know a little bit of how it is in the, in the U.S. But, uh, you know, a lot of the culture for, that, that we have here in Mexico is going, you know, toward what the U.S. Uh, uh, has, usually <laughs> with the bad stuff, but unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, you know, we, we are getting to that point that, you know, in churches, what's been preached is you have to know this. And what you have to know not necessarily means you know how to live it. You know a lot of things. Sometimes what you know is traditional, and because it's traditional, you consider it conservative, <laughs> which uh-huh. is, I don't think they're synonyms. <laughs> Sometimes you can be extremely traditional. That doesn't mean the Bible actually teaches that. And so in the way the Bible has been interpreted, you know, especially I think since Reformation and Restoration Movement is, you know, either you believe this that goes against the Catholic Church or you're not conservative. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Like Matt said, you know, maybe we're, we're not liberal, but we're asking questions. And the questioning brings you to find out the answers. And there's nothing wrong with that. John the Baptist uh, at one point asked, uh, you know, through his disciples, are you the one that was coming? <laughs> Jesus had to answer, well, yeah. <laughs> and uh-huh. so the questioning 
brings you to to try to find things out. And when you when you have questions, that's when you look for the answer. So sometimes you know we focus like like uh, like Axton was saying. You know you you have this main question, but that not might be the question for everybody. And so if that's not your question, it doesn't matter what you're trying to explain to that person. So you can, you know, have a whole class of apologetics uh, trying to push that, that information in, into people's minds. But if that's not their questions, there's no impact in their lives and there's no change. The whole idea of living out Christianity stops right there, even though you're pushing a lot of information because you do not teach how to live. You're teaching this is what you should know. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think with the idea of what McClendon, at least from what I'm you know, grabbing from uh, his, his book, is that you have to put the Bible uh, in, uh, in its uh, you know, historical context as well. And in the Reformation and even Restoration Movement, it, the Bible became a textbook. It's all the information you can get, but not necessarily what it meant to the people back then. Even though we, we use those terms when we, and uh, interpretation uh, classes, we, we usually, you know, point it out that you, know, you have to know the geographic, you know, you, know, you need to know the, the history behind it, but we really don't get into that that much. And we usually come with our ideas first, and then we're like, well, yeah, back then it also meant this, and it doesn't really necessarily mean that. When we actually put things in, in its uh, historical context, it can mean something totally different than we are expecting. Uh, you know, when when we read from uh, like Revelation, where it says you, you you're either hot or cold, usually you know we come to this text thinking, well, God wants you to be or a perfect Christian or a complete sinner. That's what he you know that's what he wants. He doesn't he doesn't want people in the middle, but there's no middle <laughs> for for God. You're either one or the other, and he doesn't prefer one being a sinner he prefers that everybody would be a christian but we have brought theology to this middle in which we have this scale of different gray colors in between sin and 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 christianity and so we're pushing all these ideas into the text and Mm -hmm. so we lose the meaning of what it means to uh, live what the bible teaches instead of looking at it as a textbook uh, yeah, you hit it. And this is not just Cottrell. This was his generation. This is Carl F.H. Henry. This that what they're talking about. What is a Christian? Well, a Christian is one who affirms the propositions and doctrines of the Bible, you know, in a kind of propositional sense. And what got left out is the lived nar- narrative reality of it. As a result, it, it's a kind of exhausting thing that I think we're up against in the Christian church, that we're, it's like that we're always trying to affirm these propositions and continually putting these, prop, you know, you got to believe these doctrines, these propositions, when in fact I think the job of the preacher, the job of the missionary, at some level should become, especially in an established church, is, well, we believe these propositions, but now what is it that we're living out? What is the reality that we're engaging, you know, that uh, we have to engage the, the now of the gospel and apprehend our present situation? And, and so there's a strange sense that in leaving out a historical theology and imagining that truth is this kind of awe historical, 
We also leave out our own present tense apprehension and what this would mean to live this out uh, immediately. Hmm. That is a sufficient answer. The problem <laughs> that, uh, that, that, is, that we face, uh, I mean, um, that I realized after starting listening to the podcasts uh, and reading your blogs now is that I start realizing, I start noticing things and it, which challenges basically everything around me because I think the the Protestant faith, the, the one that uh, Jack Cottrell himself uh, teaches, the Lutheran theology, uh, is sort of keeps you safe from having to deal with uh, with the world. And so when you start noticing that and when you start seeing that it has basically, it's, it's all something a rational understanding which you just sort of deal with your uh, with your head and you know you just talk and you argue it out uh, rather than living it out mm. Mm. that that sort of uh, that did uh, cause a lot of problem because there are many decent people in this in this country um, there are many people who are uh, who, who hold on to their traditions and they are much much better as, as human beings than the Christians who profess uh, either justification mm. through faith or the Catholic <laughs> understanding. Even the, the, the Muslim, by, at the end of the day, he still will, will, will sell a product that costs $10 uh, as $10, but a Christian has the grace to sell the $10 as $30. Uh, that, is, that is the sort of situation that we face in India. <laughs> Yeah. And I yeah. and I did not I, and I did not I would never I would never have agreed with this because I would still have held on to uh, to giving all importance to the justification through grace through a Calvinistic understanding uh, because that was what I what, what I was taught and that was what I was uh, what I believed to be right and I I probably would say yeah but still they they you know they are not de- they, they might be decent human beings but uh, you know grace the the argument grace isn't fair and you know all of that matt and i just participated oh john was there too we participated in the the conversation jeno you probably heard it on you know who is a better it was kind of a i mean the yes. premise about gandhi mm-hmm. well in in some way we have to be able to assert all truth is god's truth and mm-hmm. Uh, wherever we encounter God's goodness and God's truth, we have to be able to acknowledge it, that God's grace is at, at work in, in all people. If our theology is so narrow that we cannot in some way acknowledge that truth when we encounter it in a Hindu, in a, in a Buddhist, in a Muslim, then it's going to limit, to limit our possibility of having a theological. In other words, we need to engage that Maybe the good Buddhist, you know, I, this is what I always say about Buddhism, that mm-hmm. Buddha asked some really fine questions. Now, I just happen to disagree with some of the answers. So, in, And I think McClendon's uh, book is generous in this sense of uh, acknowledging a full, the fullness of God's grace in the world. And, and boy, where you are in India, you know, you're surrounded by multi cultural, multi-religious understanding, that in mm-hmm. some way uh, you can't just say, oh, it's all demonic or it's all of, mm-hmm. no, that you're going to encounter, as you're saying, and sometimes that's what we're up against here in this country with under the Trump era of, mm-hmm. um, and I, I'm not blaming it on Trump, 
but mm -hmm. he is a kind of sign of the same thing that you're saying. That there comes a point that, uh, in fact, evangelical or certain types of Christianity can make people worse than not. Am I, am I overstating it, Jason? No. <laughs> you, always, you always ask me, am I overstating this? And I'm always like, you could say it more strongly. Um, no, I... I, I These I, people are um, crooks. <laughs> he just called. He just. Gino just said that they that these are Christians who are crooks. Is that not what he just said? Well, yes, I, that's exactly what he said. <laughs> <laughs> but they're Christian crooks. Well, you know that's that's one of the the problems that I'm seeing with and and forgive me for the hobby horse that I always like to go back to is that we've got this idea that the problem is is sin. And that sin makes you go to hell, and so somebody took your punishment so you can go to heaven. And and it's all just the sort of exchange that happens. And it, as long as you know, Jesus took care of the sin problem by getting nailed to the cross, and now all I've got to do is is say the magic words or get in the magic water, and, and now I'm in the going to heaven club. And it... But there's a, a divide between this idea that the whole thing is this exchange that happens and mm -hmm. this call to live a different life. And mm -hmm. yet we, we're finding people who come from different faiths who have discovered some of the same truths that Jesus mm -hmm. taught mm -hmm. and have said, yeah, you know, um, treating people well is a good thing. Mm -hmm. That's really the goal is that we become... We, we love one another. Well, if, mm -hmm. you're, uh, uh, if your faith isn't about loving one another, then it's really mm -hmm. not godly faith. And so uh, there's a whole nation of folks here. I don't know what it's like in India and Mexico. I've never been there. I know what it's like in Georgia, USA. It's pretty <laughs> bad. That folks think that they can – I have people tell me, you can love Jesus and still say that people in – Haiti and people in countries in Africa are, I'm not going to use the terminology here on a forging postures course. So if, if that doesn't bother you, you have to really have a disconnect about what this whole Jesus thing is about to say, yes, I'm okay with hating my neighbor, but I still love Jesus. What if your neighbor was Trump? <laughs> I'm still working on that one. Somebody, somebody asked me, so have you prayed for Trump lately? And my, my response was, all of my prayers for Trump are imprecatory. <laughs> that was the best I could come up with. I think that uh, what, you're, what you're saying, uh, Jason, is, is uh, to me it, it hits perfectly uh, in, in this context and in church where we, I think, uh, part of the fault that sometimes we have as preachers is that we teach people the blame game from Genesis. In which, you know, they're like, well, it was the snake. No, it was the woman that you gave me. It was, you know, it was something else, but it's never me. And with sin, we do the same thing. It's, it's not me sinning the problem. It's sin. Sin is the problem. And even though, like you said, you know, Jesus already dealt with the, with the problem of sin, but we still blame sin. We've always blamed sin. We have always blamed temptations. We've always blamed demons, Satan, whatever. But we never blame ourselves for anything. And so we, we take that part of our, uh, our responsibility in the problem out of the, 
you know, out of the picture. We forget that, especially, you know, in the, in the culture that we, we live in, we like to always blame others for, for, for everything that's going wrong. We in Mexico, we blame, you know, everything that's going on in our country, uh, you know, to our president. But who voted for him? <laughs> and so, you know, we blame Satan and we blame temptations and we blame demons and we blame, uh, you know, sin. But who brought it in? We try not to, uh, you know, put that responsibility on us. On, on us but mm-hmm. that's the reason I think that we do not live Christianity out either because we do not want to take part in, in that action. Uh, God could have saved us uh, with just... Like you said, magic words, or even just baptism, uh, uh, and with simple stuff, he could have saved us really easy. But he wants us to be part of that uh, that salvation plan. You know, the problem that I see with any denomination, any any type of church anywhere, is that we pick and choose what I want salvation to be. And so, well, mm-hmm. we want baptism, we want faith, we want works, we want and and it's a blame game again of you know. Well, you say this, but that's not really it because I like this other thing. And it's all of it. It's a whole package. It's a, it's a whole you know thing that we have to take in, realize we made mistakes. And we still make them after being Christian, but we are part of this whole thing. And we're part of that salvation plan as well because God wants us to do stuff you know, together uh, alongside with through him. What's striking me, and if I, if if Paul doesn't mind me um, borrowing from Hebrews here, I, I, what stands out about Hebrews in my mind is that there's this constant analogy. You're you're going back and talking about Israel being called from Egypt. I, I think one of Israel's sins uh, throughout the centuries was they had this idea that all they had to do was kill the animal, and that got God off their back so they could go back to living their lives the way they wanted to. The, frequently, the prophets were the ones coming along and saying, no, that's not good enough. What is it that the, the writer of Hebrews sort of emphasizes is this whole thing wasn't about giving you all a nice place to live in the end. It wasn't just about, and I used to use this in my classes, and it was really impressive, but uh, sometimes it, people just kind of look at me funny. It, it wasn't just about getting Israel out of Egypt. It was also about getting Egypt out of Israel. I mean, what are the things that happens along the way? Is God is trying to make Israel into a different people. It's not just that he wants to give us a nice place to live when we die. He wants us to be like him. He wants us to be the people he created us to be in the first place. The way to understand what it is to be the people he created us in the first place to be is to look at who Jesus is. Jesus, and this is where I always run to Bonhoeffer, Jesus is the person that we're supposed to be. That's that's humanity. It's not enough just that he came to give us a nice place to live. He gave mm-hmm. us a people to be. And, and that is really what the gospel ends up being about. But it may be a, a good place to talk about the difference between a, a Cottrell and a McClendon is what with Jason is saying, is that mm-hmm. in a classical modern theology, there wasn't this idea that what is being saved is the cosmos, is everything. 
it was souls being snatched out of the world and going to heaven or, you know, the focus was otherworldly. The alternative to that is to, to recognize that we're being reconstituted as a people, uh, that it's an alternative culture. And ultimately, the, the church then, as kingdom, city, and all the, the metaphors that are used in the New Testament, it's an alternative world, that this thing is cosmic, and that salvation for all, in other words, a universal salvation, all things then, you know, Paul says the creation itself is groaning in travail, waiting the revealing of the sons of God. And I think that's what a modernist understanding is missing. No, this has to do with everything. I think that the way that I see it as being raised in a Christian uh, Church of Christ background in India, I believe that we miss out on the gospel a lot. We speak more onto the uh, epistles. I genuinely felt when with my involvement in the evangelical churches or the other churches at least, that uh, a huge part of, of what the gospel means, it, I, I felt like there was something huge that was missing in the way we were being taught. That, that is the predicament here, is people don't know what to do with the gospels. They don't yeah. know what to mm-hmm. do with the life of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, you know, in again, if it's the exchange between the Father and the Son, and that's salvation, rather than this holistic thing, you know, what I think is happening in the gospels is there is the inauguration. This is John is saying, here is new creation. The, the significance of the Gospels are that here is creation, recreation being enacted. Here is an alternative ethic, an alternative understanding that we are to become followers of Jesus in a real world sense. So the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, oh, we're really supposed to do this stuff. But what you get in a Protestant or Calvinist or penal substitutionist, well, you know, that was for a special time. You know, that was even pre-Christian. We can't be expected to to do what Jesus did. And this is sort of ironic in the Restoration Movement. Alan knows this well, both Matt and Alan. Well, all three of you know that all of you, that the way that uh, it's actually coming out of uh, Cincinnati there was this focus on the life of Christ, but not like we're talking about. What they're doing with the life of Christ, you know, Lewis Foster was my professor at Cincinnati. So again, uh, it's not due to lack of respect or, you know, R.C. Foster, these guys were great men in the faith. But what R.C. Foster was up against was liberalism and his the way he was combating liberalism was through creating this harmony in the Gospels. And so the main thing that's happening with the Gospels is to show that they can be harmonized. And they're, well, wait a minute. We just, no, that's not the the purpose. Right. The goal of the Gospels is not to prove the liberals wrong. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) the goal of the Gospels is to to articulate the kingdom of God and and the way it began and and what, what life is. I mean, it's it's the central message of of scripture. It's not about proving the liberals wrong. I was I was thinking, uh, going alongside with what Gino was saying, uh, that uh, in in the restoration movement, uh, we focus so much on after sin. Uh, you know, it's always uh, 
this is the salvation plan. This is what you have to believe. This is how you, you get mm -hmm. saved. But we do not understand in the churches how Jesus' sacrifice comes to save us because we ignore the Old Testament so much. Not, not just, you know, life of Christ, not just the Gospels. We ignore the entire Old Testament. It's, it, for, for a restoration movement type of church is always the New Testament. The, the church starts in the New Testament, and so this is pretty much what you need to learn. But if you do not learn or understand why they had to make sacrifices in the Old Testament, you're not going to know what Jesus' sacrifice means at all. You know, when we usually uh, uh, teach in, in restoration movement class, uh, type of classes uh, in that environment, it's like watching a movie that already that's already halfway there. <laughs> and so, you know, we start the movie halfway there, and it's like, oh, yeah, we started with Jesus' sacrifice. Oh, he died. Why did he die? I don't know, but he's dead, and we're good. <laughs> And yeah. just don't understand the whole thing. We come to books like Hebrews, which brings the whole movie together. <laughs> it's, a, it's a whole summary of this is how it works. This is why Jesus uh, sacrifice and resurrection saves us. But we just don't understand it because we ignore most of that. Uh, most of our sermons are always Paul's epistles. And that's about it. And that's the other thing that's coming through with Richard Hayes and others that, well, what's taking place in the Gospels to understand who Jesus is apart from understanding against the background of the Old Testament, I think is part of the reason we don't know what to do with the Gospels, as Alan is saying. And so we, it's almost like we've got two, you know, we've got this stuff that Jesus said, and this is being mined by, by several people, N.T. Wright and Richard Hayes and others, McClendon, that... There is this new appreciation then for the echoes of the Old Testament and the New, that it's just filled. You, you, to, to imagine that you can understand the New Testament apart from the idiom, the micro echoes, as well as the macro echoes, that just the very language uh, is to be understood against the, the background of the Old Testament. So I think part of a narrative theology, yeah, you have to get the fullness of the narrative. I think that's something that sounds like, oh, that's brand new. You know, narrative theology has been around just in the last half of the 20th century. But really that view is more concurrent with what the early church took scripture to be, which was Jesus crucified, preached from Israel's scriptures. And then those writings of the apostles got put together into what we eventually call the canon or the New Testament canon with the Old Testament canon. But scripture references more than just the book. You know, it is Jesus being preached in a prophetic way. And I think that's the appreciation, pulling the, the meaning of the New Testament from the Old Testament scriptures. And I think that it's McClendon that gets into this. Doesn't McClendon start to talk eventually about Jesus as the truly human one? Of course, we focus on the divinity of, of Jesus, but as Gino was saying, it's like, well, you, okay, so you get to Paul's epistles, and you kind of, well, what do you need that whole life of Jesus stuff for? We already have all this other stuff figured out, right? But uh, in conjunction with what Jonathan was explaining earlier, it's like, well, I think that rather than the, the New Testament answering questions about what we ought to know, the, the New Testament's really pointing us to, like, the type of person that we should be, and specifically, like, Jesus, right? That, that he is the truly human one. And I'm not, 
right? So, uh, like, it's, it's, it's not that my sin makes me more human, it's that it dehumanizes me, it makes me less human. Mm-hmm. And so I need to learn from the life of Jesus of what, what it actually looks like to, to be human. But i got to admit that I find, like, a little bit of a strange comfort hearing from, from Gino and from Alan mm-hmm. That it sounds like we're, it's almost like we're in a, a, a universal predicament when it comes to bad theology because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm located here in the States where it's like, I want to say it's all America's fault. It's the ideology of the empire and it's, it's our material, you know, and I, and I can rant and rave about like why it's all the United States fault. But it's, and, and by the way, and some of that stuff may be in uh, sort of an import, sort of an American import, right, into India. I don't know what type of, if it's, an, you know, American evangelicalism or fundamentalism that's being imported to places like Mexico and India. It very well could be. But I just know from my experience in, in Kampala, we're all talking about a very similar thing, in, and that is the failure of, of theology, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that it has disastrous effects uh, when it comes to just practical stuff like not ripping someone off at the market and selling a $10 item for $20 and, uh, you know, and calling yourself a Christian. It, it really is. It's bad theology. That's why I love what's going on with forging plowshares. And I'm not saying, that, of course, this isn't the only place for, you know, for, for truth and things like that. But I do think that part of what Paul is trying to do is to take a bunch of different, you know, that was my first, you know, when I first started with Paul, I think that what you get like in a lot of, you know, sort of standard Bible college classes is you get, okay, well, here's, here's what all the restoration movement guys say about topic X. What Paul is doing is saying, well, let's look at the broader tradition. Let's look at postmodern thinkers. Let's look at, you know, when he started talking about Rene Descartes, when I first started, I was like, who, what are you talking about? Rene Descartes, right? And, And so, and so it's like, so what Paul is doing is giving you a history of, of philosophy and, 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 and doing a history of theology and, and, and things like that from not just one singular viewpoint, but saying, let's look at the whole tradition. Um, let's incorporate all these different types of thinkers and let's understand what bad theology is and more importantly, what it does. And so we mm-hmm. see it here in America and we see the, ob, you know, sort of the abject, you know, it's, it's so obvious, sort of like American fundamentalism's just failure, all right? And then we hear it from Gino, and I see it in Kampala, and we see it with Alan, and it's like, well, as Christians, we probably shouldn't rip people off. Maybe we can start there. You know, maybe we can start there with our people off. You know, we don't kill people. Um, that, that reminds no, me of that poster, the, uh, the Mennonite poster that everybody yeah. talks about where it says um, a modest proposal for peace let the Christians peace. of the world commit not to kill one another and I still um, have that poster actually yeah, yeah I'm sure I mean it's it's a it's a good one right I mean if, if if we could just agree not to kill each other then wouldn't that be a place to start and it, it's shocking how difficult that is for people to accept wait a minute hmm. we've got to kill each other which is really, I mean, and, and that's the, to me, that, that's the key with McClendon. I think that, uh, you know, that he starts, you know, volume one is called Ethics. You know, that's a significant departure from, you know, I don't think, you know, Jack Cottrell's book on theology isn't starting with ethics. It's not hmm. starting with, with practice, right? So, so there's a whole volume that McClendon is doing before Doctrine on, on hmm. just the subject of ethics, right? And I think that I was thinking of this earlier, too, that the part of um, we were talking when we first began the conversation about sort of the nature of questions and, and asking the question, you know, like, does God exist? It's almost like a question that kind of arises from doubt, whereas in, in some of the, 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 the more fundamentalist uh, circles that I've ran in, like when you begin to ask those questions, 
there is sort of like that, well, wait a second, that sounds, you know, that's like doubt or something along those lines. Whereas like, I've always preferred to think of it as something like wonder. It's not that I'm grounding like, oh, you know, is there a God? It's, it's me saying, well, I wonder what it must mean if there is a God, which I'm just going to presume, you know what I mean, presume that there is, of what he must be like. And I think it's a whole different entry point into theology, you know, wonder rather than mm-hmm. something like doubt. But I guess that's, that's kind of a sidebar to just say that, like, man, I'm really grateful for you guys that we're even having this conversation and that we can recognize that whether it's India or Uganda or Mexico or Washington, D.C. or India, it's like bad theology. Mm-hmm. It, it's reckless, man. It, it is reckless. Yeah. It was quite weird, but I think this is this is where I would have been heading on to as well, or even maybe out of the faith. I don't know. But I met this person, and the very first thing, we were supposed to just have a casual conversation. We were just supposed to meet up and just probably have a cup of coffee or something like that. And that was under the impression in which I was taken to the person. Uh, the, the very moment I entered the house and I sat down, uh, he starts speaking about dualism and... Uh, and man being, uh, is, it, is he two or is he three? And he starts mm-hmm. that conversation mm-hmm. right off the bat. And, and I said, okay, my name is Gino Johnson. Um, nice to meet you. <laughs> but, 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 but you see, and I, and, I, and I said, and I said, I don't think that's such a major issue. I don't, maybe I'm wrong, but, I'm, but I said, I don't think that's a major issue, at least not right now. But mm-hmm. but he was, I mean, just going into it, but he was a nice person. I mean, he was a nice person. He was very much, I think that's what he understood theology to be. I think that's mm-hmm. what mm, a modernistic understanding is, to just have these systems in your mind, to have the best arguments uh, to present to anybody at any time. Exactly. That's why I think that we need, that's why we have to have humility. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I, I know yeah. that I was at that point, you know what I mean? Where it was like, I already had my my system up and running. I already had uh, the answers. What I really needed was a little bit of humility, you know what I mean? To kind of go, maybe I'm wrong, just on a bunch of different issues. You know, I was... I think that we can begin to characterize both bad theology, false teaching, heresy. I would again <laughs> say that's a Jack Cottrell problem, that it's, all, it's going to always take the shape of a dualism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that in some way that our characteristic failure of understanding will be to mm-hmm. then fall into various forms of a dualistic understanding. It's not just a Jack mm-hmm. Cottrell problem, that in the end, he's a dualist. Yeah, no, I was thinking earlier when we were talking about um, sort of how we approach theology, and strangely enough, I started thinking about Socrates. And, uh, you know, when you start thinking about, right, it's like, so, so there's the one way to do theology where it's like you walk into the guy's house and he says, let me tell you about the tripartite nature of the human, you know, and then, and, mm-hmm. you know, let me sort of lecture you on that. Or you can be someone like Socrates, who, who, mm-hmm. who in my opinion, sort of brings like a humility to the whole thing where he just says, he, he asks questions. It's, it's difficult to have a conversation when someone's lecturing you. You know what I mean? But it's a wonderful thing to have a conversation when someone's asking you a question and you can, you can try to, you know, work your way through and then you kind of say, well, what do you think about that? Right. And, and you kind of mm-hmm. have a conversation. Uh, uh, how, how are you finding McClendon? Yeah, everybody seems to be doing okay. Yeah, it's pretty great. Oh, <laughs> uh. <laughs> it, it is because, um, uh, Everyone ha- sort of has these questions where they're like, okay, w- w- I know my systematic theology says this, but 
I still have some doubts about it. And but the, what they don't realize is there's a vast area where you can dwell into, and which is basically the heralding of a new age, which is exactly what James McLennan does with this theology. And so that uh, that really, um, in that sense, it's really great. I think of the what's usually just known as the post-liberals, but really just as far as American theologians in the last 50 years, he's done something that's both systematic, but, you know, I mean, it's systematically unsystematic. So it's a very well-put-together theology. You're getting things like you might from Hauerwas or, you know, even going further back, Lindbeck and Fry. but my knowledge, even Lindbeck did never write a mm-hmm. any kind of systematic theology. And so what you're getting in McClendon is all of this coalescing into three volumes that you can actually get through. Uh, whereas Hauerwas, it's just essay after essay, and you sort of have to put things together. Um, and so I think he's invaluable in that sense. And Stanley Hauerwas himself, who is, of course, much better known, uh, says that McClendon's three volumes are some of the best systematic theology books written in the last 50 years. So I think, I think something that McClendon does, does for us, too, is he gives us a little bit of a... Uh, a nice background on a lot of different uh, other thinkers. Mm-hmm. So he'll sort of expose you to a lot of different, you know, again, like, so in something like, uh, and, and not to pick on Cottrell, everybody is indebted to, you know, that Cottrell is, uh, he, he's doing what he's doing, but I think he's just kind of giving you one, one sort of vision. Matt's uh, right. McClendon is uh, well-read, very well-read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that shows in the book. So it's a lot of exposure. The, the, <laughs> McClendon was actually uh Along with a guy named Miroslav Volf, uh, he has a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And that was kind of like my first exposure to more of like an academic systematic theology that was kind of higher level than, than just something like a, at a Bible college that you would like a normal textbook, you know, for theology. But it's been really great because since McClendon was one of those, those first guys that I sort of dealt with, and then everything that you read subsequently to that, right, as you make your way through, through uh, you know, an undergraduate degree and then a graduate degree, it's really awesome to kind of go back to the beginning and kind of read McClendon and go, wow, he's got a whole lot of stuff, you, know, uh, you know, that I'm kind of like revisiting McClendon going, wow, this guy has a whole lot, you know, right, I think, um, that we, we went on to sort of confirm through all these different thinkers from – you know, from, from Aquinas to Kierkegaard, all, you know, all the way through, right, into, into 20th century thinkers. It's like, you know, it, it's nice to return to someone like McClendon and go, man, he, he, he was saying something before I even read all those other guys. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's anything else like it. I mean, Paul and I talked about that before the class. We said, well, is there anybody else that, you know, you'd want to start a theology class with? And honestly, when it comes to like a, a systematic a book on systematic theology, it is. I mean, it can be a little dense and it can be a little difficult. You got to kind of learn his language and his style. But once you do, and you kind of almost get used to that sort of uh, way of writing, you start to really recognize the value of what he's doing. And Jino and Alan both, I'd say this that uh, you know, the third volume is witness, and in witness, he has a full-bodied appreciation. I think for guys like yourselves that are you're you're deal, you're working in a, a multicultural situation, or uh, that McClendon, the the theology that he's working out is one that is going to I think be able to give us a full-bodied appreciation. I'm not going to be aware of what you're doing in India and Mexico, but I think that you can begin to plug in and and use it. And in, in, it, 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 I hope it opens doors there for you.
Oh, excuse me for one second. Is that a monkey behind you? Do I have that right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Joel has been teaching uh, Chinese students English, and she had she set up my office as a kind of uh, classroom, and okay. they're they're often small children, and so she uses the monkey to, you know, the monkey will say something, and so she's got. She's got uh -huh. all kinds of uh, classroom material in there. <laughs> okay, I think I see Raggedy Ann there. I'm not sure if that's a whale or a shark or mm -hmm. something there, but uh, finish your MD. You're done with that. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so you're studying for that on. So you're studying Paul, all this theology stuff on top of the <laughs> the medicine. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, and you never sleep yeah. apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I've slept enough in my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Sleep is the cousin of death. All right. All right. Good night, everybody. Goodbye. See you guys. Good morning. <laughs> Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.